Ethan, I thought you were just going to lead with, hi, I'm Ethan, I'm engaged. But you didn't do that. No, that's right. That's weird. Okay. Anyway. Um, hey, you guys. Really good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Jeff. And um, if you're new with us, as Ethan said, really glad that you decided to join us today. And um, knowing there's a lot of places you could be. And, you know, right now it's like 115 degrees, it feels like, outside. You could be at the pool or at the beach or something. But thank you for joining us. Uh, we believe that no one's here by accident. We believe that, you know, God has got something going on. And I just, you know, it, this is an exciting community to be a part of. I, um, I've been getting stories from a lot of you guys that have come back to me from our last series, this Neighborhood series we finished up last week. Just people talking about how they're thinking about their neighborhoods differently, how they're thinking about what it looks like to, to be the church, not just in, these, in this you know, room, but what it looks like to be the church out in the community where the beauty of the church really is expressed in so many different ways, whether it's you know, service or just gathering together or being whatever it might be. But I just, it's been some great stuff. And so today we start a new series. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be great. I... Um, uh, we're looking at this kind of picture of what is, you know, for a lot of people, how do they actually see God? How do they actually see Jesus? And the, the, the idea, well, I kind of had this experience with my daughter this past, this recently. We were talking about, she sees me watching a lot of football on TV. And she was asking about, like, she's like, she's like Dad, can you explain this? What, is, what, are they, what, are they, what are these guys doing? Like, what's that all about? I'm like, sure, it's no problem. So here's, here's, you know, the object of the game is to get this ball into this thing called the end zone. You just run across it, and then they're... What are those big things? Well, after that, after you score six points, you get an opportunity to kick an extra point. Okay, so then I'm explaining that, and there's the seven points, and then, but so she goes, it's always seven points. Going to those also a two point conversion. What's a two point conversion? What's conversion mean? It's a long story, but um, and then but she's like, so they kick it a lot because it's called football, right? No, almost, almost never. They almost that's like the last. You only do that when you have no other options. You know, it's that's why you kick it. She's like, okay, and so we're watching the game, and, you know, there's like, I'm trying to explain, like, no, what are those guys running around throwing flags at people? Oh, those are the referees, and, you know, and I'm explaining offsides, and then I'm, I find myself trying to explain, like, what a neutral zone infraction is, and looking at my seven-year-old, like, do you get this? This is fun, huh? And then she's like, she's watching the game, she's like, where's that guy putting his hands? Because there's the quarterback doing this with the center, and, it, you know, it's like, well, that's, um, you know, you're, you're ruining the game, Molly. You just go play with your friends or something. I don't know. And I think for a lot of us, this is actually how we kind of see God. There's like, there, you know, we kind of have an impression about the overall kind of concept. But when it gets down to it, we kind of feel like, even if we grew up in the church, we kind of feel like we're a little bit outside of what we're kind of supposed to know. That there's something about God we ought to know. It's pretty good. I mean, even, uh, even if, you, if in the Bible, you have this picture. The very beginning of the Bible starts so Genesis 1. So right there's Genesis 1. We can put that on the screen. Genesis 1.1. Right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible starts. And it's, if you, you know, that's like a famous line, right? Well, the, there's a problem in there, and that it starts with the word God. Well, there's lots that's assumed about who God is. It assumes that the original audience would have had some kind of impression about what even the concept of God means. And we're kind of confronted with that same stuff. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk through a series. It's, you know, it's going to be great, but it's it really what we're going to focus on is what is the outsider, what's kind of the outsider's guide to Jesus? Like really, who is, who is God and what's this all about? And all these things that we think we know, do we really know them? And all these things that we kind of have held to, how, how much sway do they really have on us? I think it's going to be a very, very good series. If you're, if you're you know, thinking about bringing some friends to church, it'd be a great opportunity to have them investigate what we actually believe. Like, okay, this is what we're all about. And whether or not you've been in church for your whole life, you grew up with songs like we sang up here this morning, or you've never heard those before, Whatever, whatever it might be, great opportunity to kind of refresh what it is we actually believe about God. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then we'll begin today's, uh, we'll begin today's message, and we'll, we'll talk about that stuff. So let's pray. Jesus, we are um, 
uh, as we already prayed earlier, we're people who are in need of you. We need you to be big. We face real life problems and real life struggles and we, fe- we face real life loneliness and we need you. Regardless of our own experience with you, our own knowledge of you, regardless of how much Bible we've read or how many songs we know or how loud we sing them, we are still in desperate need of you. And so, Father, as um, we begin this series and begin this conversation today, God, we have lots of confusion and lots of questions, and we know that nobody in here has all the answers about all those questions. But we do know, God, that it is your desire to reveal yourself to us. And so, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us in a way that's surprising, that can only be attributed to you? And so, Father, we, we just pause in all of the hurry and the pace of our life just to allow you to speak to us in the stillness. So we give you a moment, Father, to speak. Lord, we acknowledge that you are God and we are not. We acknowledge that we have questions that need answers, and we have some answers that may never come. And yet, Father, we, we acknowledge that you're good, even if we don't always understand. We acknowledge that you are Lord. In your name we pray, Father. Amen. Well, like I said, the beginning of the Bible, you can take out your outline, by the way, which is in your bulletin, which Ethan pointed out earlier. But well, like I said before, you know, the, the Bible starts with this picture of there's this God who then starts all things and begins all things and starts creating and putting, putting things in order and all that kind of stuff. But the idea, you know, like, again, they have this question, so, kind of like, well, God does all this. But there's another question beyond that, which is, well, so what is God like? God does this stuff, and we have this question then, well, what is, God, what is that God like? He makes things, he does all these things. You know, we've been told a lot. Some of us have experienced growing up in the church and then having been told some things that were kind of confusing to us that we then have since abandoned and then now we're kind of coming back to it. Others of us have no experience with God and we've kind of got some impressions from some people about who God is and it's kind of like, I'm not totally sure I understand that either. You know, there's been a lot, we've been told a lot of things about God that have influenced the way that we've acted. We've, been, we've operated on a certain amount of assumptions that have influenced the way that we've treated other people or understood ourselves to be or even thought about, you know, all of reality. But, you know, we kind of have this experience, too, with our, with our own kids or even as you were growing up. You, never, you ever had the experience where your parents tell you things that are clear, they're out and out lies, but they're, they're intended to try to get you to modify some kind of behavior? You know, like the most obvious one, you raise your hands if you, this was you, that your mom or dad said, you know, stop making that face or else your face will stay that way. You guys ever get that? Yeah. And everybody had that moment. You probably held on to that lie well into like your sophomore year of high school. Like, you need better, oh wait, I don't know if my face could really stay that way. But you have that lie, right? Let me ask you, we had some great ones last service. Let me ask you guys, what are some of the ones that you had that your parents gave to you when you were, when you were growing up? What? Meaning what cross eyes? You got to give me the whole story, Fadi. If you hit your head, you'll, you'll go cross-eyed. Yeah, that'll be it. You'll just always see double. Right. If you hit your head, cross-eyes. Right? So did you wear a helmet a lot as a kid? Yeah, good. That's good. Good idea. Okay. <laughs> if you eat watermelon seeds, if by some accident you should swallow a watermelon seed, be ready to add about 14 more pounds right here. And the pregnant women said, 
Like, that sounds kind of roughly, yeah. Okay, good. What else? That's it. Roll your eyes, they'll get stuck in the back of your head. Yes. That's ridiculous. Just kidding. No, what else? Yeah, back there. Someone raise hands. Chewing gum. You swallowed good chewing gum. It will take seven years to digest. My, my five-year-old is working on a mostly full stomach right now is what I'm saying, you know. Good. What else? Oh, right. You have to wait an hour. Yeah. Until you, that's true. See, right there. So you have to wait an hour after you eat lunch to go swimming, you know, or else you don't know. A shark will bite you, right? Good. What else? Yeah. Never put too much ice in your water. Well, how come? You'll get colitis. <laughs> don't put too much ice in your water. You'll get colitis. We are, we're looking for a reason why that happens to some people. And cold water. Good. Thank you, Michelle. What else? Anything else? Yeah, go. If you pee in the pool, so we'll have a circle. We'll get a circle around you. A circle will. A circle will appear. A hula hoop will just show up. I just peed. See the hula hoop? Stay away. Yep. They're all really good ones. There was someone last service who said. <laughs> She said, if you, if you wear your underwear backwards, you'll end up marrying a crazy person. <laughs> I have no idea how that, that what, what behavior was trying to be modified. I mean, you know, I guess it was a big problem in her house. I want to show you a couple other ones. These are some that, here's a website that kind of grabbed a few of these. These are some, some of my favorites. Some of you will recognize some of these. Some of you will never have seen these before, but check some of these out. Here we go. <laughs> ice cream truck plays music. That means they're out of ice cream. <laughs> Hey, sorry, kids, it's playing music. I would love to buy you ice cream, but you hear the music. It sounds like it wants it. It's, I know. <sighs> sorry, you guys. Okay, here, this one. <laughs> My mom potty trained me by saying that kids in diapers weren't allowed in Disneyland. I was potty trained in a few days. When we got to Disneyland, I saw a kid in diapers and told the mom the cops were going to get her kid. <laughs> I can see she's got diapers on. Don't drink the cold water. Okay, here we go, next one. My mom told me there's a little man who lived in the fridge that would turn the light on. I believed her and was terrified of that little man. <laughs> Where does he hide, Mom? Okay, good, next one. My parents told me about Santa and how he'd eat me for Christmas if I wasn't good. That person is in counseling now, and that is, like, terrifying. I hear something, it's Christmas Eve. Is he coming to eat me or give me presents? I don't know. Okay, good, and then look, I'll just let you read this last one. This is my favorite one. <laughs> you can just imagine a mom like at her wit's end with her kid not eating his peas. I don't know, if you don't eat your dinner, Buzz Lightyear will die. <laughs> I don't want him to die. I mean, just like, we have, we have all these things that are intended to affect our behavior, to modify the way that we live. Now I'm going to tell you one more story. This is from um, our senior pastor, Kenton B. Short. You know, like Ethan mentioned, there are four campuses. Uh, this, is the, this is the main campus of all four of them. The Irvine campus, you know, really, it's, it's, by the, it's like a chair, chair warehouse by the lake. There's really not much to it. It's, we've been in there. If you go in there, and we'd be like, oh, they just keep all the chairs here for all the other campuses. Yep, that's what it is. Um, but there's four, there's four campuses that make up Mariner's Church, Irvine being the, the largest of those. And uh, Kenton Bishore is our senior pastor over all four of those campuses. So we're in a, a meeting with just the lead pastors from all the campuses. And he goes, I got to tell you guys a story. It's the best story ever. He goes, so um, 
I guess they were swapping these kind of stories, him and his buddy, and he goes, my friend says, uh, I, went, I went to visit my grandparents in some place that had snow over Christmas break when I was a kid. Like, you know, I went to go to Colorado or to Maine or wherever, someplace cold and whatever. And so he's, he's goes to, he goes to this place, and he's so excited to see snow for the first time. Like he gets out, he gets out to the, the place where the parents are, the grandparents are. And who knows, I don't know what the point is, but they, they, he's like so pumped about playing in the snow. And they, he asks grandma and grandpa, hey, can I, I want to go out and play in the snow. And they say, well, we really, we really can't right now. And I don't know whether that's, they had a good reason. Maybe it was late at night. Maybe they had just flown in from the plane. Who knows? But he's like, I want to go play in the snow. And they go, well, well, you could. But uh, there, I mean, you could, but there are snow snakes. And the kid, you know, do, do, do they bite? No, they don't bite. They just shoot up your butt and freeze you to death. <laughs> so you can imagine this poor kid who's like, oh, yay, snow, and just watching it the rest of the time at the window, like, <laughs> snow falling, you know, never going out there, watching people walk by, like, screaming at them, you know. Get away! You know, whatever he'd be saying to him. This poor kid. So he comes back home after Christmas break. Teacher says, what'd you guys do for your Christmas break, for your winter break? Oh, you know, and this guy goes, oh, I went, I went to visit my grandparents and wherever it was, and it was snowing. Well, did you get to play in the snow? No. Well, why not? Like, as if the person doesn't know. Snow snakes. And the teacher goes, well, do they bite? <laughs> kid ended up in the principal's office when he had to explain that one. No, they don't buy it. They're just freezing. It's weird. I think for a lot of us, people who have grown up in the church and people who are investigating the claims of the Bible and all that stuff, I think for a lot of us, we have a snow snake version of God. That we have this sort of we, God needs you to have some modified behavior and so there's some stories that accompany him, but they're not right. They're a little bit off. And for a lot of us, we have to kind of get away from this idea a little bit that, you know, we've been given some stories about God that have been intended to either affect our behavior or to make us feel a certain way. And as our lives kind of got on a little bit, as we grew up a little bit, the explanations about God and the stories we got about Him for a lot of us didn't match with the reality of our experience. Because we start saying things like and singing things like, well, God is good. And then we wonder if God's good really is good enough. And God is so big and powerful, but is his power really powerful enough? Because, you know, even this past week, we wrestled with these questions with John Ramsey from our church community in the hospital right here, having a brain tumor removed. And we wrestle with the idea of someone like, uh, who, you know, was a great pillar of, of, you know, the church, a guy named Chuck Smith. We wrestle with him going going on to, to die. I mean, we, that's like, these are all things we go, wait, wait, how, how, wait, aren't you, aren't you big enough? Aren't you powerful enough? We've been told some things that they're just not fully complete, and our, we have real questions about real life. We wonder if, if God, if all of what we've been told about God is as it, as it ought to be. Maybe there's something else, because God's kind of confusing. He doesn't really match our lives. As we look at the Bible, we get a picture of God, particularly as you begin the beginning of the Bible, you get a picture of God who is very majestic, who is incredibly powerful, and yet he, he still appears to be kind of confusing for a lot of people. 
And what I want to do is I want to paint you a picture a little bit. I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. I want to paint you a picture, and you're going to wonder, where in the world are you going with this? And I promise, I promise I will land the plane by the third week of the series. Uh, no, I'll land, I promise I'll land the plane, okay? So just trust me, all right? Here we go. I want you to see this. This is Exodus chapter 19. The Israelites have fled out of Egypt. They're standing in front of this mountain called Mount Sinai and the, this mountain range called Horeb. And there they are. And God is showing up in this really incredibly powerful presence. Here it is, what it looks like. You maybe have heard this before. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very, a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. You have smoke and earthquakes and sounds, and everybody's like, wait a second, we don't know what this is. But it's God, it's just, it has to be God, because what else could do this? This has to be God. And they have this, you get to see this picture where God's being identified as like fire, and you're going to see over and over again as we read some more scripture, you'll see this like the glory of his presence or his, radiate, his radiating presence of glory and light shining off. Check this out. This is in Leviticus 9. Moses and Aaron then went up to the tent of meeting. The, this tent of meeting is sometimes called the tabernacle. It's simply, this is like the mobile worship center where the people when they're wandering in the desert would set up their camp. They'd worship and this is what it would look like. So it's called the tent of meeting. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. You might underline that phrase. It's going to come up a few times appeared to all the people, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the fat portions of the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. There's this mysterious, powerful God among us. There's radiance and glory and all this kind of stuff. And it's still like, well, what is that all about? They don't know what to do. They don't know how to describe it. They just call it glory, this sort of radiant beaming of God. Second Chronicles, this is where Solomon has built the temple for, um, let's get moving the timeline a little bit. Solomon has built the temple for God to inhabit. This is the place God is told, I'm going to dwell among your people in this temple. He dedicates the temple and this is what happens. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And there's this phrase again, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces on the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good, His love endures forever. God is showing up, His manifest presence is showing up in some really powerful way. The glory of God evidently has some kind of mass to it. it has, you can't get close to it. They, the people keep trying, we can't go in there because the glory is in there. I don't even know what that looks like. I'm sorry, we can't, we, there's just, we can't do anything. The glory of the Lord is in there. You see the shining and the beaming and all that. We don't even know what to do with that. And here's the typical response. They encounter this mysterious, majestic God. They experience the glory of God. And then they bow down on their faces and they just kind of start worshiping. But what's interesting, you have to catch this is, this is all real awesome, but none of, none of these pictures of God have a handle to grab onto. There's no real good form. It's like, it's fire and glory. I don't even know how to, how would you even draw that? It's just this weirdness there. There's no form. And that tends to make us uneasy. The people who walk with God, the Israelites who walk with God during this time, 
are uneasy with the idea of a God who doesn't have a real simple form to be able to grab onto. There's something unsolid about his glory and his fire and his radiance, but there's no... People don't like that. They don't like the idea of not having a shape to hold on to. This is in your notes, but I want you to back up just a little bit. In Exodus 24, there's this... Moses is, is going out to meet with God. This is at the same mountain. Here's what it says. It's Exodus 24. I just want you to hear this. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord, there it is again, settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of God looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you have all this kind of pyrotechnics. Catch this for a second. I went out of order on purpose. You have all these kind of pyrotechnics. There's like sound and thunder and lightning. And all of the people see where Moses goes, and what they say is, look at the fire resting on top of the mountain. This is amazing. The glory of the Lord is resting on the mountain like fire itself, a consuming fire. Moses is up there for 40 days. By the time he comes down, after all these people have seen the radiant glory of God, which all of us go, I wonder what that would look like. Wouldn't that be cool if we could see that? That would solve so many of my doubts if I could just see that. He's up there for 40 days. Comes down. 40 days later, the people have made a little golden idol. They made a little calf. They've taken all the jewelry and said, you know what? The fire's awesome and the radiance is awesome, but that's not enough. We need something that has a little bit of a shape that we can hold on to, that we can look at, that we can bow down to, because we need something more solid. Radiance and glory just isn't cutting it for us, they say. They've seen the most brilliant display of God's power ever. These are people who have followed a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke in the day. They've walked across the Red Sea. They've seen, all kind, they've seen everything you could imagine about God, and they decide after 40 days, eh, it's just too long to wait. We'll just make a little golden calf to worship. Deuteronomy 4 says this. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you, spoke to you at Horeb, Horeb's the mountain range, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. One translation says it this way. The Hebrew says it a little bit more like this. Give great care to your souls. Watch yourselves. Give great care to your souls. Because there's a part of us, part of our own makeup, which is designed and needs to have and likes worship. But there's a part of us, as much as we like that, that needs a part of our own makeup that needs it to feel pretty close to us. And the writer, who's Moses here, is saying, this is dangerous for us. When we don't have a form, we tend to kind of make one for ourselves. We like neat, clean stuff that's kind of up close to us. But formlessness, well, that's tough. So watch yourselves. Keeps on, there you go, uh, keep on reading. You saw no form than any kind the day spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. So that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like an animal or any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. He says, watch yourselves because you're going to want to make yourself something that's a little bit more tangible, a little closer to you. And if you do that, you'll become corrupt. It'll actually ruin you. What happens when you do that is you end up kind of forming a little snow snake kind of story about God, a little sort of false idea about who he is. And if you give something a form that you choose on your own, there's no, it will just become a snow snake. There's no way you can make a form that's adequate. 
Verse 19. And when you look up into the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Now, right now, Moses, you know, God through Moses is addressing these, all these people and he's saying, you've seen the way the Egyptians worship stuff. They got all kinds of animals that they've attached to different God powers and they worship the sun and all kinds. Don't do that. But what's interesting is he doesn't just say, just don't do that. He says, do not be enticed. Do not be enticed. Uh, one, one translation has, uh, do not be seduced by all of these other things. Another translation has the word, do not be drawn away. The, the Hebrew word for this idea of being, you know, sort of drawn away or being seduced or enticed is the word banished. In other words, that there would be some part of us that would be taken away from the worship God has given us and removing ourselves by the power of this kind of seduction to another place of worship in which we would banish ourselves. Because we're easily enticed. You know, by, and then it has this end of it. It says, by what God has apportioned to all the nations. Meaning, God has given to you all of this stuff. The earth and everything in it. It's God's, and he has given it for us. All of it's a gift. And he says, don't worship it. Don't worship the gift. You guys ever seen those videos, those YouTube videos of uh, a kids who have like, they have like, a, they have like the wildest, joyful like seizure at Christmas when they open a present? You guys seen these things? My favorite one a couple years ago was a guy who barfed when he got a, a Wii, a Nintendo Wii. Like, he literally was like, it's a, it's a wee for Christmas. And he just was like, he just, everyone's all, he's crying. And then he just is like, like, he has to walk out of the room. He has to run out of the room because he's going to throw up. I've never in my life experienced a barf of joy. But that was what that kid had. <laughs> he was like so overwhelmed with this. And I remember as a kid, if they had, if we had had, you know, a way to record my reaction. I remember when I was, and I'm, I remember my mom and my aunt were there at this who are here, and they could vouch for me. But I, I remember when I was like seven or eight years old and the first generation of Transformers toys came out. And I remember having like one of those kind of, you know, I wish we could have recorded it. Of course, back then it was like $15,000 for like a, like a shoulder-mounted, you know, bazooka thing with a side backpack that you recorded these massive tapes on. You know, like I remember, I, but I wish we could have recorded it because I had one of those like ran around in circles and, you know, ooh, barked and, you know, like whatever I did, I was like so excited and, you know, kicking and jumping and whatever. It was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Now, I remember also the tragedy that happened immediately thereafter when I went to my grandmother's house and dropped one of those Transformer toys and it broke and I was like, oh, no. Like I remember shaking and tra- like the full on trembling of this kind of stuff. But here's the point. I didn't, I mean, maybe, maybe when I was seven, I actually did worship Optimus Prime or something, but that's the truck guy. I was like, oh, maybe I did worship, maybe I did. But I, I don't, the point is, at no point did we want to ever turn from, thank you, mom, for this gift, and start saying to myself, I now worship the gift that has been given to me. I'm not, I'm not grateful that Optimus Prime and his buddy, the other robot guy, came to me. Thank you for coming to my house. You are so wonderful. To, you know, no, no, no. My mom gave me these gifts. I acknowledge that my mom is the giver of these gifts. And what's being said here is, don't start thinking because these gifts are so good to you that they're worthy of your worship. Now, we're kind of stuck. Because why is this so enticing? Because we're like, I never worshipped a fish or, you know, a son or whatever. I don't, I don't, (laughs) that's crazy. And we're kind of stuck. 
Because on the one hand, we want God to be big and powerful. We want him to take control of stuff when things go a little haywire. When we encounter real life situations, we need God to be bigger than us. And on the other hand, we like God to be a little smaller. Because we don't want God to make kind of any demands on our lives, kind of asking us to think about things a little differently, live a little differently, whatever it might be. We want God, we don't, we want to, we want a God's a little smaller that can come a little closer, be right, you know, we can put in our pocket and take him out when we need him. But that, we need that. We want a big God, but we don't want him to be so big that he, the truth is, our default mode, humanity's default mode is to choose a small God that we craft in our own image by our own hands that gives to us what we think we need, but really what that God tends to give to us is just our desires. And we end up becoming enslaved to that God. Now you're going, I don't know what you're talking I have never shaped out of gold anything in my life. I don't worship anything. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me just give you a sense. Anybody ever placed, I mean, identify what worship is. Anything that has your undivided focus and attention. Anything that grabs a hold of even your thoughts when you can't be around it. Things that are, have your, not, your life is leaning itself in that direction. The arc of your life is bent towards it. Anybody ever heard anybody that kind of had that description apply to their job? Maybe work has got everything I need. I, I, everything I need for my entire life could be the life I get the fullness of my life that I need, I get from my job. You ever heard anybody talk about the fullness of the life that they want and believe in is in some kind of holding on to relationships? That there's a sense that says, I'm so lonely that no matter what else happens, no matter what else I have to give up in my life, it doesn't matter, but I just can't be lonely, so I'll choose even unwise relationships so I'm not alone. Things that we think about, that we worry about, that we wonder about. You ever heard of people who are so overly focused on their own social status within whatever group they might be connected, whether it's a group of moms who push strollers in Ladera Ranch, or it's a high school group of people that you're friends with, or it's a college, or it's people that you're with at work, or it's people that you play golf with, or other parents that are in your neighborhood. Have you ever thought to yourself that you've never heard of anybody, perhaps, who goes, I'm really concerned about what all these other people would think about me? I think about it a lot, and I wonder, and I, and I buy things, and I think about the way that I live my life, such with always them in the background evaluating those things. That's a form of worship. People who are trapped in addiction, who are longing to receive some kind of something from life that could just give us something right now, that we choose it, even though the consequences are terrible, we choose it, and we don't choose it on purpose, but it's all we got, and it's what we need to get us through one more day, and so we just choose that. Worship. For me, here's mine. The small God I like to sort of put up on the altar of my own life every so often. I like to put up this altar about being really genuinely liked by a lot of people. I like the idea that people would think I'm wonderful, amazing. I don't like the idea that people would find out at times that there is a broken person who is, you know, struggling with stuff who wrestles with big things, who doesn't have his act all together. I, you know, I say every week, this is, a, this is a church for a group of people who are convinced that they do not have everything together. And 
I hate saying that I'm also one of those people. There's a pressure on me I've always felt like that if I didn't have everything together, people would abandon me. And so, you know what? The reality is that's, that's become something I worship. What is it for you? You're not crafting things in the shape of a fish or a dog or a bird or whatever else it might be or a sun or a moon, but there are things that you'll place on your own altar. Is it some kind of pleasure or addiction or whatever else it might be, a status, a physical appearance, anything? But the Bible says from the very beginning to the very end, essentially, we become like the objects of our worship. And let me just ask you, is the object of your worship big enough that it would not just, that it would actually give you what you need in your life? And I realize some of you are like, you're just checking the church out. You're not sure if you want to be here or not. But this is the kind of stuff we want to wrestle with. Because we believe there are things in our lives that hold us captive. If we worship, if we worship sex, you become a, a lustful person. If you worship money, you end up becoming a greedy person. If you are a, a person who seeks after power, you end up becoming a tyrant. These are all the kinds of things that our heart is oriented toward worship and it shapes us into being that kind of thing. You know, we have a need for worship. There's a reason why there's a need for corporate worship. There's an interior need for that. There's a reason why live events are so much better than ones we watch on TV. You know, I couldn't tell you guys, I, you know, like if I told you I went to a U2 concert and, I, and you asked me, where did you go and see it? And I said, oh, it was in my living room. I watched them on TV. Okay, you, that's not really the same thing as going to the concert. Or I said, oh, you know, I went to, the, I went to the, the division series, you know, again, I saw the Dodgers play. You did! No way! Yeah, I was watching in my living room. It's not the same thing. There's something about us that needs the corporate experiences of being a part of something that's bigger than us. There's something a part of us that the small, however small we might feel, individually we might feel, is a part of us that needs to be a part of something bigger than us. We are oriented toward worship, and our own hearts are already gone, gone down that path. That's what God has given us. Is what you worship big enough? We need God. We need a God that is somehow bigger than just a small God that we can kind of control, that is part, sort of bowing to our own whim. We need a God that is big enough for that, and yet somehow still kind of up close. And we need a form for the fire, this glory, but that form can't be from something that we create on our own. And to go back to the original question, we have to ask, what is God really like then? Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. The author here writes, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in many various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, this is Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Did you catch the line? The radiance of God's glory is in the sun. That everything we've sort of been looking for, the fire of all of the radiance of God's glory that no one could explain, that didn't have a form, that didn't have a shape, has now been given a form. God himself has embodied this man, Jesus. And his glorious radiance is in that man, Jesus. All of whatever God appeared to be, the fire, the earthquake, the trumpet sound, the earth trembling, whatever, all that stuff, the lightning, whatever you want, the glorious radiant, all of that stuff is in Jesus. It 
says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. All of that stuff, which we're like, what is that, is in Jesus. And the exact representation of his being, the word exact representation in, in Greek, it's, it's amazing how this, this word, I'd love, we could do a whole Bible study just on this one verse. The word exact representation in Greek is the word character. It's the word character. I mean, I looked at it over and over again. Like, am I saying this right? I don't, you know, I have to read it. Like, it takes me a really long time to read each Greek word. I'm like, character. It takes me forever. It's like, that's the word character. I'm like looking it up. Like, it can't be that word. It's the word character. And here's what it means. It's a word that's borrowed from, this is where, this is going to be awesome. You, you, it's a word borrowed from um, minting coins. That Caesar would have his own image placed, for instance, on a coin, in a mold, and then that mold would be charactered onto a piece of metal to form a coin. And thus his image would be made clear on this other thing. Now what's being said here is that Jesus is the exact representation of the mold from which he was minted, which is his own father, which is God. There is no more snow snake stories about God. Because the answer to the question, what is God like, is Jesus. The answer to the question, what is God like, Jesus. There's a story that's told about, by a, um, a famous professor who was, um, he was also the pastor at, at, um, in Oxford in England. And he, was, he would be, go around and he would introduce to the students who were there, their, their first year students, and he would talk about, you know, hey, would you guys want to be a part of this, we have a, a Thursday night or whatever it was. They don't, it's in the Church of England, so they have a cooler name for midweek. We would just, if something happens in the middle of the week, we would just call it midweek. But they had like a cool name. I forget what it was. But they, you know, invite them to some Vespers or something. I forget what it was called. But he's like, would you want to be a part of this? And the, the student says, well, you know, I'm, I actually, I'm, you know, this, this is in the Church of England. The pastor's wearing a, you know, collar and everything. So the, the guy says, well, actually, I'm sorry to tell you this. I'm, I'm actually, I'm an atheist. And so this is the greatest answer ever. He goes, professor says, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. In other words, the assumption is you don't believe in a God that is actually God. You have been given a whole bunch of snow snake stories. You have heard about a whole bunch of different things, attempting to modify your behavior, and you're missing out on the real picture of who God is. So why? Well, I, I believe in I believe in the God I see revealed in Jesus, was his answer. And I have to tell you, you know, this is what Chris, this is the heart of what Christians believe. Christians do not simply believe in a bland morality sort of extracted from the Bible. Christians do not believe in just a code of rules that have been handed down to us by generation to generation. Christians don't believe in a particular style of dress or a style of music or whatever else it might. They believe, it's just about this one thing, Jesus. That's it. That's it. We believe in the God we see revealed in Jesus. If you came here today, someone brought you, like your friend was like, hey, come check out my church. You know, we have another wall than most rooms. It's really cool and whatever else. But if you, brought, if you came with someone, let me just give you some insight. Like they were like, hey, you should come check out the church and you're not like a church person they brought you because, you know, people will do that here. It's kind of one of our things. We bring people here. But um, it, it, let me just tell you what they're feeling because they're acting all cool. Like everything's fine. Everything's totally cool. They're terrified. The person that you, you came with is terrified because they're afraid that we're going to do something weird or bizarre. They're like, they're praying when they got up this morning, and I know you're like, you're sitting right next to this person going, you're really afraid? And they're terrified, because here's why. The person that brought you, they're like, 
dear Jesus, please, you know, McGuire, he, he's kind of, he, every so often he's okay, but sometimes he's kind of a nightmare, and I need him to kind of dial it in today. This has to be awesome, because I'm bringing my friend, I don't want it to be weird or lame or whatever else it is. And, now, and they're just terrified. But all they want you to do is see. What we're about is Jesus. We might get a lot of stuff wrong. We might, we might do some stuff weird. But we're about Jesus. That's it. And you may not agree that Jesus is the exact representation of God, the fullness of him, the glorious radiance of God. In this. You may not believe that, but at least you're going to get that picture right. This is what we're about. The Paul, the writer of Colossians, writes it this way, similarly, he says this, Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Firstborn, by the way, doesn't mean like he was the, the oldest child. It means that he has, the, he has preeminence as the oldest son. It's a, yeah, you get it. He's, just, he's awesome is all it's saying. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Keep reading, verse 18. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first person to rise from the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. By the way, all his fullness is like, it's kind of an interesting wordplay. It actually better translates, all the allness. Like, Everything of all of whatever, it's like all the allness. That's what that means. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness, all the allness, dwell in him. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. No more snow snakes. Look, we're just going to spend the time for the next couple of weeks. I don't know how long it will go, but we're going to spend some time for the next couple of weeks just looking at Jesus. And we're going to look at it through the book of Luke. Luke is an unbelievable book for the reason that there is, um, this is a guy who's not, he's not a Jew. He's not looking at Jesus when they start talking about words like, you know, the word like Messiah is a Jewish, that's a Jewish word. Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah, just so you know. Like, there's, he doesn't, Luke doesn't have an experience of anticipating the Messiah to come. He just knows that all of these people in this ancient world start saying stuff like, wow, the Messiah, this is so great. He's come. He's the Lord. And they're like, and he's like, well, I don't tell, what, what, who? And so Luke is a guy who dedicated himself, who never really had, he never walked with Jesus face to face. He's like, I got to see what's really going on here. And you have multiple generations of people after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection who are like, well, I, I wonder. It's kind of like, remember when your grandfather would tell you stories about like the depression? And when you were a little kid, you're like, I don't even, is that really for real? Does that really happen? Like people made tomato soup out of ketchup and hot water and they'd tell it to you like, you know, as you're trying to clean your plate, they're making you feel terrible. But remember those kind of stories? And you're like, that really happened? People actually live like that in your lifetime? And Luke's asking the same thing. Did this stuff really happen? You guys keep talking about this stuff. He spent some time with Paul. But there's this guy who's writing this account of Jesus' life. And what he's trying to do is, let's go, he's trying to go, okay, no more snow snakes. No more ridiculous stories about, is this, if this is really him, I want to know about it. And I want to make sure his story is told well and accurately. The beginning of his book even starts, so I want to write an orderly account of all these things. I want to show you just for a moment. For the next couple of weeks, I don't know how long it will take, but we're going to walk through the book of Luke. And just to give you a sense of how much Bible, this is my Bible. 
That's how much the book of Luke is. I know it's so thin. If I held this way, you can't even see it. It's so tiny. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to read the book of Luke. If you dedicated yourself to it and said, I'm just going to do it right now, and you left today and went home, you'd probably read it in about a half an hour. And I realize you have busy schedules and busy lives, and there is so little margin in your life. I totally understand that. Break it up into sentence chunks at a time. I don't care. I just read a little bit of it. I know how busy you are. I had three, my, my kids had three soccer games yesterday. We started at uh, 8.30 and went till 4.30. I think I fell asleep coaching my son at the last game. You know, it just, it's, I mean, I get how tired we all are. I totally understand that. But I believe if you want to get a little, by the way, if you want to get a little extra credit and you want to read it, great. But I just want to tell you, if you, I believe if, and if you don't have a Bible, steal one of ours. Walk out proudly like, I just stole this. I'm so, cre- I'm a rebel. I steal Bibles. How awesome is that? Okay. Just steal one. Someone asked you where you got that. If you're like embarrassed, I just stole a Bible. Just like, I kicked a dog and then stole a Bible. Whatever it is, make it up. You're the toughest person in the world. But here's what happens. When you read the book of Luke, you'll get a picture of Jesus that is so incredibly compelling. Regardless of whether or not you agree that he is God fully, all the allness of God is in him, whether or not you agree with that, you're going to get a picture of this person who is so incredibly compelling, who is so compassionate, who moved toward the poor and the lonely. He moved toward the people in the margins with great intensity. He frustrated to no end the people who were the religious leaders because he kept associating with people that the religious people didn't want around him. He walked with the lepers. He had dinner with the most notorious sinners. He hung out with prostitutes. This was a guy who had every, re- I mean, everybody was heaping all kinds of blame on this guy. And yet there was something so compelling about it. You will see a guy who worked miracles in people's lives, who walked close to the brokenhearted, and who is good. And whether or not you believe he is who he says he is, the full radiance of God's glory poured out from him. And it will raise great questions in your life, and it will kill snow snakes. I guarantee it. So would you do this, just for a moment. Would you close your eyes? I'm going to walk you through something, just really quickly. Is this. What are the small gods that you have set up in your own life that you are longing to give you power, life, and fullness? Is it one of the ones we talked about? Is it a, a social awareness? Is it a, is a climbing some kind of ladder? Is it a significance quest? Is it a power quest? Is it a relationship Grab, is it some kind of addiction? What is it? When it feels like God is distant, what's your default mode to try and get a little bit of control or power? You were made to worship. Every one of us, what is it that you worship? Jesus, we believe that there is fullness and life in you. Many of us have questions about that. We say often this is a place where not every, there's no one in here that has every single answer. But this is a group of people, Father, who want to know you. We want to see you revealed in Jesus. We don't understand everything about you, but we know that we need you.
We acknowledge that there is emptiness and there are things that drain us in our lives and we need you to fill those things. We don't need need any more snow snake stories about who you are. We just need you, Jesus. We need you to be huge. We need you to be powerful. We're tired of small gods and little promises and false statements. We're tired of manipulations and flattery. We're tired of trying to fit in. We're tired of trying to make something of ourselves and always wondering about what everybody else thinks about it. Father, we need you. We need you, Jesus. All the allness of God in Jesus is what we need. We surrender, Father, those other gods that would take your place, your rightful place in our lives. So Jesus, we sing and we respond to you and we pray together. It's in your powerful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.